Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. Hello, this is the Russell Moore Show brought to you by the Public Theology Project at Christianity Today, where every week we explore conversations and questions from a Christian perspective. And as you know, every once in a while, what I like to do is a segment called Tell Me Where I'm Wrong. This isn't really one of those uh, because we're going to have a, a we're going to have some things we disagree about. But we're also going to have a, a great deal of agreement. So there's not one specific issue that we're sort of uh, talking about, but we'll, we'll still abide by my rules for tell me where I'm wrong, which is if we do come into areas of disagreement, I'm not allowed to debate. Uh, I'm allowed to ask questions for information and to reflect on that. And so it may be that that doesn't, that we don't even get into that territory, but if we do, Kristen, you call me out on it and tell me <laughs> tell me that I'm breaking my own rules. Uh, so our guest today is Kristen Dumay of Calvin University, who is the author of Jesus and John Wayne, which is a book that, uh, you know, oft, it's not often that a scholarly work of history uh, becomes a kind of viral read, <laughs> but uh, this time it did. Uh, I would find uh, people all over the place, uh, especially conservative evangelical women, who would sometimes whisper and say, I've been reading Jesus and John Wayne, and there's a lot that really, uh, that really describes what we've all uh, seen in recent years. And so this is this has uh, really shaped and reshaped a great deal of uh, conversation and debate on some really important issues because this intersects with a lot of things that uh, that we've seen over the past several years. I had Kristen with me at the University of Chicago this semester, uh, talking to uh, our students really about the entire history of uh, not just evangelical Christianity, but the overlap between religion and culture and politics and all all of those things this semester. It was really fascinating. So I wanted to have her on to um, have this conversation with you. Kristen, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. 
You know, I mentioned to you the other day um, that I, I sort of, I have a list um, that I sort of keep in Google Keep of, of milestone dates so that, that I can sort of think about, oh, well, this is the date of my baptism or this is the date of uh, some significant thing happening. One of those dates is October the 7th. Because uh, this was the this was the day in 2016 when the Access Hollywood uh, tape released with a candidate for president talking in really really shockingly crude and um, violent I would say terms uh, about women and one of the things that the reasons that I mark that as a as a defining point is because I thought well. A lot of my fellow evangelicals who have been well-meaning, they didn't really understand what was going on here, they'll stand up and, and repudiate this. And they didn't. Uh, instead, I started hearing, well, this is just locker room talk and, and so forth. And even some of them who did say something about it uh, then later changed their mind and, and turned around. So I was surprised, and I think it's fair to say rattled by that, but I think you would say I shouldn't have been surprised by that. Is that, is that right? <laughs> yeah. You know, going back in time that day too, for me is, is, uh, uh, a kind of a turning point that's, it was in the aftermath the, the, the days after that, uh, event that I knew I needed to write this book. Mm. And and it was because I, uh, years earlier, more than a decade earlier, I had started researching evangelical masculinity and particularly what seemed to me a really militant strand of it in the early 2000s, this um, kind of warrior ideal. And I'd spent a year and a half looking into it and I was I was disturbed by what I, what I saw. Um, I encountered deeply misogynistic, crass teachings about masculinity that were you know, cloaked as, as Christian. And I also saw the implications in terms of uh, militarism and, and foreign policy. And I was exploring all those things. And then I set the project aside. And I, um, I, partly because I wasn't sure if what I was looking at was was really a fringe movement. And if as a Christian, as a Christian scholar, if I should be, you know, if it was fringe, if it if it was right for me to, to shine what might be a, a, you know, a bright light on the darkest underbelly of American Christianity, to be honest. Uh, so I set it aside um, by I didn't stop paying attention to some of the proponents of this really militant Christian manhood. And what I saw in the ensuing decade is one after another become implicated in scandal, in sexual abuse, in abuse of power. And I saw these repeated patterns of people surrounding them, uh, condoning that, uh, defending them, blaming the victims. And so in the days after the Access Hollywood tape release, it suddenly dawned on me when I heard all of the excuses, when I heard the justification, when I heard, when I saw that conservative evangelicals were, were sticking with him because um, he was going to defend them. And you know, it's kind of boys will be boys mentality. All of a sudden it clicked. I had heard this before. I'd seen this before. And it's at that point that I realized um, kind of what we were looking at and that it, it wasn't an aberration. This wasn't a betrayal of, of core evangelical values. In many ways, this is the fulfillment of of, of the shape that I'd seen evangelicalism take, particularly around issues of gender and masculinity. 
Okay, well, let's take a several parts of that um, that I'm interested in exploring. One of those things would be uh, you talk in the book and uh, elsewhere about uh, this idea of um, militancy, of sort of a, a warrior Christ. Uh, would you say, would it be fair to say that sometimes there is an overreaction to the last bad thing? And so you have a you have a picture in Scripture of a very complicated uh, Jesus who is um, who is uh, I mean Revelation nineteen uh, appearing in the sky drenched in in blood. I yes. mean this is a this is a warrior, uh, someone who's coming out of the house of David. When Mary, uh, when when the Annunciation happens, uh, she starts singing about um, military victory in terms of the Abrahamic covenant. So there's that aspect of it. Do you think that do you think that sometimes there's a flipping back and forth from a uh, a very soft, uh, gentle Jesus, where people go to the New Testament and say, "Eh, that doesn't really fit everything there," to this sort of hyper masculine. Um, battling uh, everyone and, and stacking up the enemies, Jesus. Do you think that there's some of that that's that's an overreaction for people yeah, in I think either you, direction? You can see a kind of cultural pendulum swing uh, when we look at uh, perceptions of masculinity, of Christian manhood, but I would complicate that just a little bit and what may be some assumptions there of, you know, what is masculinity and what is femininity? And, uh, you know, mm -hmm. that there's a lot of kind of cultural packaging that goes on there and um, that shapes kind of theological conceptions as well. So as a historian of gender, I'm, I'm attentive to the ways in which what it means to be a man changes dramatically over time, what it means to be a woman changes over time, and how in recent decades, conservative evangelicals have tended to emphasize difference, emphasize opposite. So what it is to be a man is the opposite of what it is to be a woman. So strength mm -hmm. versus vulnerability and, you know, protector versus protected. And what happens then is many of the attributes that are held up as for all Christians, as followers of Christ, things like the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. These get labeled feminine, I think mm -hmm. uh, uh, erroneously so. And then other mm -hmm. traits like courage or a Assertiveness get labeled masculine. And so what you see is this real artificial division of Christian virtue in a way that isn't good for virtue, it isn't good for men, and it isn't good for women. Mm. So what would you say to someone who says, well, that, that probably did go too far, but it's a Flannery O'Connor pushback as hard against the age as the age pushes on you. And you're in a time when, uh, when gender distinctions are evaporated and erased, and, and there's a great deal of confusion about, well, what does it mean to be a person first, but then what does it mean to be a man or a woman? And so emphasizing the differences that's because no one else will acknowledge them. Uh, what would you say to someone who, who sort of gets into that mode of argumentation mm -hmm. here? 
So I actually don't have these kinds of arguments all that often because as a historian, I, I, I tend to be quite descriptive. So describing, you know, mm -hmm. how people have these arguments rather than telling people what they ought to think, right? That's, mm -hmm. that's what historians can do here is just bring mm -hmm. in the context and say, ah, this is, uh, you know, how, how this set of individuals are making sense of their world. This is how they're making sense of, of masculinity in this moment. And, and this is how they're interacting with the Christian scriptures in this moment. So uh, I have some expertise in that area. When it comes to telling people what they ought to think and what they ought to do, that's where, you know, I'm, I'm kind of yeah, um, sure. uh, an amateur in a sense. I do have some opinions though. Uh, but you know, here, I think that the biggest caution would be to, um, to stay close to the scriptures. And to um, you know, to to take the scriptures in their entirety. Um, certainly, we can look at specific passages, but to remember that you know the vast majority of the scriptures that we have as a guide to our our uh, faith and to our lives are written for women and men alike. And and to remember that Jesus, uh, in so many ways, was uh, radically countercultural as a man, as a human, as a Messiah. In so many ways, Jesus disrupted human expectations, and and he did so in a way that was uh, you know divesting himself of power, and that that's what's so extreme. And and he calls all of his followers to take up our cross and to follow him in that. And I think that for masculinity, for femininity, this radical countercultural self-sacrifice and a courageous self-sacrifice, right, is, is the model of what it is to follow Christ. And then maybe way down the road, we can, we can think about as a woman, what does that look like as a man? But even there, that, that's assuming a binary that, that each of us, as God created us in all of our diversity, um, should be fit neatly into a, a category of this is what it is to be a Christian man. This is what it is to be a Christian woman. Instead of thinking about the, the, um, creativity of each of us being uniquely gifted in so many different ways. And, and we do have a spectrum um, that if you look at certain traits, you know, uh, uh, that, that uh, might fit more with masculinity or with femininity that might be exhibited more by men than by women. So physical strength, mm -hmm. things like that. Even there, you mm -hmm. have a lot of variety. Women who are mm -hmm. very physically strong, women who are not, men, same thing, right? And so mm -hmm. rather than trying to enforce um, boxes on um, created reality, uh, maybe to think in terms of of, of variety and of uh, giftedness and of the body of Christ really being a diverse mix and that each of us can seek to respond faithfully to how God has created us as as uh, gendered individuals and just as as individuals. And I, I think that, you know, when I look at the history, when I've interviewed people, when I hear from readers of Jesus and John Wayne, I hear heartbreaking stories from mm -hmm. women, but also from men, from so many evangelical men who tried to fit themselves into an artificially constructed box. Uh, that to be a man is mm -hmm. to love to go rock climbing on the weekends or to not like to go to an art museum on the weekends. And, and the, so the many wild, men- wild, The wild game dinner at the exactly, men's breakfast. Exactly, yeah. uh, exactly. You know, and felt that either they weren't real men or that Christianity wasn't for them. And, and I think that's what we really want to move away from. Mm. 
course, uh, my colleague here at Christianity Today, uh, Mike Cosper, has a, um, a podcast, uh, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, that, to be honest, I thought would, at the beginning, I thought, well, this will be a very interesting podcast for those of us who remember Mars Hill and who are looking at the history of it all in light of some of the things that have come to light since then. Uh, but it has gone everywhere. And there are people listening to this podcast who haven't even, uh, who, who don't, maybe weren't even born when, yes. when uh, Mark Driscoll was in his heyday. I'm curious what you think about, uh, I, I had a pastor um, in the area who was talking about some young men uh, from his church who would go to um, Mars Hill sometimes for the services and they would just sort of sit in the balcony. And he said what was going on there was a kind of catharsis because what Mark would do is come in, and I think some people don't really remember this, there was a sense of um, a hyper-masculinity turned against men in, in, in one sense. So there was a, a very strong denunciation of uh, young men for mistreatment of women and porn and uh, not uh, not getting their lives together and those sorts of things. And, and uh, this pastor said it was almost uh, like going to confession and paying an indulgence. You had that and then you could could leave and sort of go back to go back to normal. But why why did the Driscoll phenomenon, both what we saw publicly and what we know was happening privately, why why did that resonate, at least to the degree that it did? Yeah. Uh, you know, often in, in my research for Jesus and John Wayne, I felt like I was running up against the limits of my my discipline. And I, I uh, several occasions, really wanted to pass the baton to psychologists. And mm -hmm. I've, I've talked mm -hmm. with a couple of psychologists in, since the book published and, and been exploring some of these things just a bit. But... Um, uh, that said, you know, I think I think there is uh, um, one of the interviews that I did uh, that was really illuminating. I, I have a portion of this in the book was uh, a young man who said, you know, there was something incredibly empowering about the teachings of, of somebody like Driscoll uh, and that that, you know, each of us mediocre white guys, you know, like <laughs> nothing special, um, were called to greatness and we were called to lead. And, and you know, all we had to do is just really step up. And as he put it, keep our noses clean and, you know, and it was being handed to us and it felt really good and it felt empowering and, it, and you know, not empowering just in a bad way, but, it, you know, for, for young men uh, who are seeking purpose, who are trying to figure out who they are in life, what they ought to be doing. Um, and, you know, this is, this is all couched in the language of this is what God wants for you. And I think it's important to keep that in mind too, that this is, you know, a, a lot of people who've been drawn into these sorts of teachings genuinely are seeking to honor God and to do God's will. And they're being told by their pastors uh, in their churches, in their small groups, with their brothers in Christ, this is what it looks like. And so I think I think it's enticing. I think it's empowering. And I think that there is genuine belief here as well. Uh, but, but then, of course, we have to ask, you know, who's how is this affecting people? Um, and, and what are these men not able to see? Um, and, 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 and I've been really surprised 
uh, and impressed with the the reception of um, my book among so many conservative white evangelical men and white evangelicals generally who who are using it to examine their own participation in this culture, but not just in a in a distancing kind of way, like what was done to me. I've had a number of readers ask the next question, which is, um, why was I so comfortable with this, right? Mm-hmm. How could mm-hmm. I be complicit in this? Now that I see really what was going on, now that I see how all these pieces fit together, now that I see what harm was done to so many others, to women, to people outside of these communities, to people inside of these communities, what was it that blinded me to this harm and why was I so comfortable? And honestly, I think that is such an important question. I think that is a question that many of us ought to be asking. You know, one of the one of the things that's really uh, uh, illuminated quite a bit uh, for several of us uh, is the sexual abuse uh, scandals um, that have happened within evangelical, not only within evangelical Christianity, but within. I mean, we have John Howard Yoder in the Anabaptist tradition, yes. all the way over to uh, things in the secular world and the Roman Catholic Church and, and elsewhere, but. Uh, when we look at evangelical Christianity with people who often were the very ones warning about sexual anarchy uh, and uh, the sexual revolution and so forth, who we, we later find were involved themselves in sexually predatory behavior. As you look historically, is is this just something that... Uh, I ask this question all the time about various things. Is this just the way history works and the way uh, the way life is, and we sort of lose our ideals and our illusions, or is there something uniquely uh, uniquely dark in this way about this time? Yeah. Oof. So I'm a Calvinist, so mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't I don't speak in terms of uniquely dark with all that mm. much confidence, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, I think that there are uh, there are temptations, and, and you know, basic human temptation is is uh, you know grasping power um, power over others, and then. Uh, at the same time, yes, this this does seem a little bit unique in the circumstances with such an emphasis on purity, right? Such an emphasis on sexual purity being a marker of faithfulness and of enforcing that, drawing those boundaries, um, and and particularly for young women, for generations, right? To, you know, kind of Christian discipling, uh, if you were a teenage girl from the 1980s up to you know the last few years, really, a lot of that uh, was was how to not have sex, how to stay pure, and then and then once you're married, how to have sex to please your husband. You know, it was really centered in terms of um, being a godly young woman, and and we can talk about that and some of those implications. But then the hypocrisy to see that so many of the men who were preaching this uh, and and who were um, you know who were enforcing this were um, were predatory and and then you know historically when I went back and looked at these teachings on sexuality when I read the sex manuals from the 1960s and the 1970s I could just see plain as day how these values were setting women up 
for um, a victimization, really, being told that it is up to you as a woman to protect uh, purity because uh, men are filled with testosterone. Restraint isn't really their thing. It's up to you. You have to protect it through your modesty, and then you have to protect uh, purity when you're married by meeting your husband's sexual needs. And it's one thing to read this, uh, you know, in in a in a sex manual or in advice to a young wife. Another thing to just hear this over and over again when uh, uh, among community members, when a pastor, a leader is is caught in sexual misconduct, and then to hear exactly these teachings coming back, and it's the wife's fault, blame the woman, blame the young girl for seducing her own father, right? It is just um, horrifying to read this. And, it, and and this isn't just uh, in, you know, every once in a while, this becomes a repeated pattern. And, and yeah, so as a historian uh, or as a Christian, I can fall back on, you know, sin and power and it's pervasive. As a historian, it does seem like this is a uniquely um, troubling situation. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. With summer coming up, I'm already dreading not only the traffic on the roads, but also the increased cost of groceries and the fact that my children eat all day long. You know, we all have stressors. Some are big and some are small, like an increased grocery bill. But therapy is a safe place to actually get these stressors off your chest and to figure out how you can actually work through them. There are many benefits to therapy for people from all walks of life. It's helpful to learn positive coping skills so you don't freak out about that grocery bill and how to set boundaries. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Moore today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Russell Moore. You know, there's a, there's a new book that I'm reading now that uh, argues that one of the reasons we have so many awful people in power uh, is because awful people tend to be the ones who don't mind being in power. Yes. And uh, the, the analogy that this book is, is using or the, the phenomena that it's looking at, one of the phenomena it's looking at are, um, is school boards. And so he would say, you know, 20 years ago, someone would run for school board because he or she really cared about education in the community. Now in a time where that person is going to have to endure uh, being screamed at and sometimes having their families threatened and, and so forth, the people who are willing to risk all of that tend to be Machiavellian, narcissistic, sometimes psychopathic uh, people. And as he was talking about this, that really had a lot of parallels for me uh, with what often goes on in the church. Do, do you think that that's historically the case as well? Just sort of a, uh, not, not so much that the power corrupts, but the, the, the people who are corruptible, which is the name of this book, corruptible are the ones who want the power. Is that, mm -hmm. is, does that, uh, does that thesis make sense to you? 
I mean, it does up to a point. It's it's certainly something I've struggled with when I when I try to make sense of okay, where do we go from here? How can we have better institutions, healthier institutions? Because uh, there's a bit of a conundrum when I look at the history. I look at somebody like Jerry Falwell Sr., Jerry Falwell Jr., Mark Driscoll. You know these figures, or mm-hmm. we can say Doug Wilson. These empire builders, really. You know that they they um, uh, uh, really were were deeply concerned about amassing power. And now they could say, you know, and would all say that they were doing so for godly reasons. Uh, but uh, y- you know, you can see some some really uh, detrimental effects. Uh, And at the same time, wow, did they get things done? (laughs) Wow, did they influence culture? And we could go, those are more extreme examples. We could also look at some, you know, somebody like John Piper and Desiring God and the Gospel Coalition. You know, these really, uh, these organizations that end up having massive reach. Um, and then, you know, what what does it take to make something like that work? What kind of a vision? What kind of leadership? What kind of exclusions go into that? But in the case of leaders like like Falwell or Driscoll, yes, they seem incredibly narcissistic, and they had uh, enormous power. Um, I mean, reach. They they influenced generations. Of um, of American evangelicals, and when I look at kind of more wholesome models, and when I look at some of the teachings, say uh, when I look at what happened in the evangelical left uh, in the 1960s, 1970s, when I look at those evangelicals who were, who were on the forefront of civil rights, of racial justice, um, who were working, who were questioning uh, Christian nationalism or links between. American Christianity and American militarism and stepping back from that, they weren't able to amass the power, um, nor necessarily did they desire to do so. Their models were much more collaborative. They were very conscious of power. And so I'm a bit at a loss, honestly, as a historian looking back, because I can see the the, the dangers of grasping power, I can also see the effectiveness uh, in a bad way in many cases of having somebody at the center who, um, who knows how to um, consolidate his own power. And it's been enormously effective and often in detrimental ways. So I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned Christian nationalism and uh one of the things that I'm curious about is when you're looking at this historically, of course, in Jesus and John Wayne, you talk quite a bit about uh, the Cold War and yes. the effect of the Cold War on evangelical identity and so forth. Um, it seems to me that there's continuity and discontinuity. Yes. Uh, so one of the things that I have seen uh, since I was five and able to pay attention to it is this sort of God and country um, idea of uh, the United States as being in covenant with with God in in a second uh, second chronicles seven fourteen sort of uh, way. It seems to me that that has grown uh, and and maybe mutated from that to something even stronger uh, in alliance with some. Uh, ethno-nationalist uh, yeah. movements and and the the prizing of people who uh, often not only are not Christians 
but will ridicule, uh, for instance. I mean, one of the, the figures that's been very influential uh, here argues that, um, that you shouldn't even argue against theism because it's not even worth taking seriously and, yes. and sort of a Nietzschean view of Jesus is weak uh, and so forth. D- am I seeing that correctly, that there's, there's something that was sort of in, in seed form but then has, has altered a little bit as time has gone on, maybe in coincidence with the Trump era, maybe uh, because of that? Am I seeing that accurately? No, I think I think that is a, a good way of of um, of depicting what's what's happened, and and it, it's important to keep in mind that you know Christian nationalism versus you know patriotism, or it, it, there's there's a whole spectrum here, and in that many you know kind of God and country uh, Americans uh, Christians who who see nothing wrong with having a flag up in front of their church, who you know like to shop in the the you know for patriotic home decor at Hobby Lobby, uh, things like that. You know that there, there's a full spectrum. So many of those people who who might be you know comfortable with a certain level of Christian nationalism that. I frankly am not, you know, are are not necessarily one of the same with white nationalists. However, um, where alliances are drawn, right? Where people say, yes, we are the same. We are on the same side. Uh, this is where questions of identity come in. And I think for many conservative Christians, uh, being a kind of God and country Americans is um, part of their identity as Christians. And, and so when they see some of these more secular figures or some of these extreme examples, uh, the affinities are in that direction rather than say the other direction where you're gonna get more of a critique, where you're gonna get more of a, you know, no, or, or actually we need to lament our, our nation's sins. We need to examine our nation's shortcomings, right? That's where we ought to be engaged. And so one of the, the themes really of my research Search for the book was was trying to map out these affinities, um, how identity is constructed, and what I came to see is in the 1960s and 1970s, a lot of conservative white evangelicals ended up identifying with secular conservatives around ideals of masculinity, around ideals of whiteness, of even in some cases, uh, white supremacy, and that their religious and cultural identity was formed around those values. And so separates them from evangelicals, other evangelicals who might hold very similar theological beliefs, but a different application of those beliefs when it comes to uh, politics or when it comes to identity issues. And I think that's very much where we're still in that space today. Um, and, and one of the challenges for evangelicals, for American Christians, is to figure out, you know, what what that we we are assuming or, or stating is, you know, biblical Christianity or God's word is, in fact, uh, you know, on the left, on the right, shaped largely by maybe secular ideals um, or identities. And how can we kind of peel back some of those layers and come together and take another look at the scripture? scriptures and, and kind of um, build up from there again. One of the places where I think you and I might see things differently is the, um, it, it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that one of the things that you're arguing in Jesus and John Wayne is that there's there's no such thing as evangelicalism uh, <laughs> theologically, that there is no, there is no theology there, um, except maybe as a, uh, as a, 
a mechanism, a, a means uh, to an end. That instead, uh, what evangelicalism is, is a sort of cultural, political, consumer uh, identity. Am I seeing your argument correctly on that? Uh, I'm not quite so extreme. I'm not, I'm not such a relativist. Oh, okay. uh, so <laughs> so I'm, a, I'm a cultural historian, right? And um, I'm actually, I've written on this in other places about how uh, uh, evangelicalism is an imagined uh, religious uh, community um, in that uh, it, many different people define it in many different ways. And mm -hmm. so I would imagine you would define it more closely attuned to the Bebbington quadrilateral, the theological definition, right? Biblicism, crucicentrism, conversionism, and uh, activism. Mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, go to the website of the National Association of Evangelicals. You know, first and foremost, these are Bible-believing Christians and, and and go from there. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Or we could add Barna and, and have a few more uh, uh, points to, to uh, check off. Uh, I'm not saying that that isn't what you should say evangelicalism is, right? As mm -hmm. um, a kind of aspirational ideal, as an evangelical leader, uh, by all means, go for it. For me, as a cultural historian describing what I'm seeing, I ran up against some issues with that definition. Um, first of all, I was aware of you know surveys that evangelicals themselves are doing that show high levels of theological illiteracy, high levels of heresy, if you will, uh, right mm -hmm. among evangelicals. Um, and so I started to question how central is you know, traditional theology to evangelical identity? Um, are, should we say those aren't evangelicals, right? If we're using a theological rubric, or do we have to look somewhere else for what it means to be an evangelical? When I looked at the issue of race in particular, you know, all those theological beliefs, the majority of black Protestants check all those boxes. The strong majority of black Protestants who check all those boxes do not identify as evangelical. So right there as a cultural historian, I pay attention to that because mm -hmm. they know there is more to being evangelical than simply checking off those boxes. And I want to take that seriously. I want to take seriously when people self-identify as evangelical oh, um, and don't know this theology or theology isn't central, who are they and what do they mean by that? And that's what pulled me more into a different understanding of evangelicalism, not disconnected from theology. Theology plays a role, um, but it's not limited to that. And so I don't actually give a definition of evangelicalism. I'm more in the description territory. Right? I'm not looking mm -hmm. for a timeless rubric that I can impose over all, all space and time. That, that's not what I do as a, as a mm -hmm. historian. I'm looking at, in this particular historical era, who is identifying as evangelical? What does that mean to them? What does it look like? And that's where I end up really understanding evangelicalism as a consumer culture, people who are shaped by these products, these cultural products, Christian radio, Christian music, Christian publishing, and as a series of networks and alliances. Again, these, these parachurch organizations, some denominations, individuals, affinities, and that's how I try to map out what evangelicalism is. Um, and I pay attention to how evangelical leaders and theologians are defining it. I just don't privilege that definition over more of, of um, an understanding of evangelicalism and what it means to ordinary evangelicals who are participating in it. Mm. I see a lot of uh, parallel with uh, some of the things happening in the Republican Party and within movement uh, conservatism, because 
you know, one of the things the Trump era has done is to resort all yes. of the alliances. And so there, there will be uh, lots of us who will be in conversation. And I'll be talking to, say, uh, Jewish uh, William F. Buckley sorts of uh, conservatives yes. who will say something along this line. Uh, we always knew that there was a fringe. Uh, we always knew that there were kooks and loons and nuts. But we assumed that they were the fringe, and we assumed that most people really were motivated by limited government and Burkean yes. uh, understanding of, uh, uh, of the role of tradition and of culture and strong national defense and so forth. And then you come into this moment where you, you look around and you say, oh, wait a minute, that, that actually wasn't what was uh, uniting the coalition. And so you have some people who are really rattled by that and saying, well, what happened? It seems to me that a lot of that is the sort of reflection that's taking place uh, within evangelicalism. And, and just as sometimes these conservatives who said, I'm not going to go along with the populist uh, demagogic sorts of, mm -hmm. uh, sorts of forms of, uh, of uh, ideology that are present right now, we'll have people who will say, well, um, you should have seen this coming uh, 40 years ago, uh, and uh, therefore you can't see it coming now. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, it seems like there's a lot of parallels there with some people saying, well, I mean, I think about when we're talking about even these, these gender conversations, the fact that uh, I, I look back and I see there are, there are places where an understanding of gender roles is actually more important than the eternal generation of uh, the son. I yes. mean, literally yes. conciliar uh, ideas. Uh, is that is that a fair parallel, or am I just seeing that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm seeing it too. We're both seeing it, right? I, I mean, yes. Uh, there's so much there in, in what you just said. Uh, you know, yes, there, there's a, a, a new sorting happening. There's a new recognition of what was fringe uh, is not fringe, and maybe it never was. <laughs> maybe you mm -hmm. know, it depends where we were looking. If we were looking to you know define evangelicalism according to what was going on at Christianity Today and Wheaton College, we we miss something here. Mm -hmm. um, and, and this is really part of the writing of this book, right? I'd set it aside um, 15 years ago thinking, is this really, you know, if this, if this is fringe? Um, and it was in, in the fall of 2016, I thought, no, no, this is not fringe. I need to do this. Um, and, and then we start, I mean, a story of the book is what is mainstream and what is fringe? And then what is the relationship between what was perceived as mainstream and this fringe? And this is where we can get into, I think, where you're going um, with uh, with this question too, uh, you know, should we have seen this coming? Um, when we look back to evangelicalism, you know, and race and gender, and even though evangelicals uh, certainly they put gender up front, uh, didn't talk about race um, as much, right? Color blindness, um, and you know, this is just a theology; it's not a racial identity or a cultural identity. And yet, you know, when you go back to the early 20th century, the fundamentals, you know, African-American pastors weren't invited into that. When you look at the National Association of Evangelicals, it's a, it was a white organization at its founding, despite theological affinities, right? And so history can make some of this plain to us. 
And yes, when it comes to gender, I mean, my own life story, I grew up in a, a Dutch Calvinist community. I, you know, took entire courses on Calvin's institutes and, you know, was deeply theological. And then I um, went to graduate school in the late 90s. And this was right at the, you know, the rise of the Young, Restless and Reformed and mm-hmm. and the, you know, John Piper heyday. And, um, and I thought, good for us, right? Calvinists, we get our moment in the sun. This is great. And then I realized, yeah, this isn't, this isn't for, there is no place for me as a woman, as an intellectual, as a woman who didn't believe that complementarianism was the only way to be faithful, right? I could say the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, right? I could embrace Calvin's Institutes, all of that, and there was no place for me. And so it was how orthodoxy was defined, how, um, yes, what was the center of the faith? And when the center moves from, right, the... um, um, you know, the core teachings of the scriptures, the uh, love your neighbor as yourself and love God above all, uh, going to those um, historic creeds and confessions, and is instead identified uh, around gender roles, and then increasingly elaborate gender roles, I think inevitably the center ends up shifting, and who you see as an ally will end up shifting, which which can end up transforming the faith itself because that core has shifted. Mm, I remember teaching a class um, coinciding with the Southern Baptist Convention every year, and I would have students who would attend to the meetings, and I was I would prepare them for it by saying, you know, every family has the crazy uncle uh, up in the attic, and so you have to be prepared for some crazy things that are going to be said at the microphone. But you know, that's that's family. Uh, and then as time went on, I, I realized, oh wait, maybe I'm the uncle in the attic. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that was the the issue all along is that I was the one out of right. step with all of this. Right, uh, right. So, yeah. No, it was, it was think, quite I think, something, I have to say, to, to be watching that from the outside, right? I mean, this is something when, when we connected uh, in person, I, I told you that as a historian, I, I uh, up until this book, I've only written about people who are long dead. And so to <laughs> actually get to talk with you, a character in my book uh, is in itself thrilling, but also to have you know been writing this book and then watching things play out in real time. Um, it was... was uh, it was it was just it was a very strange experience. I'm sure it was even stranger to be living through and kind of realizing what was happening. What I will say too is that um, you know to kind of bring um, both race and gender into this conversation, mm-hmm. you know, as a conservative white man, some of these boundaries were probably not instantly evident to you. Yeah. Uh, because you could move freely in those spaces. Right. Whereas right. as a, a woman or as a person of color, I think some of these boundaries that had been set up, we, you couldn't help but bump up against. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I think that is um, perhaps worth noting. And mm-hmm. um, and also, you know, your experience, it became visible to you when you started pushing back against some of these. And then it was apparent just how um, how significant these um, these boundaries were. Yes, I think that's absolutely the case. And I I remember having a conversation with a group of these were conservative complementarian evangelical women um, who said uh, in a very 
not, not in a uh, not in a oppositional way at all, in a very friendly way, said we sense that some of the things that have been revealed over the past several years um, with sexual abuse and and scandal and cover-ups and so forth, that this is deeply rattling to you. And uh, what we want you to know is that none of us are surprised. And so I I looked around the room and it didn't matter whether that was the 25-year-old woman who was a PhD student or the 70-year-old pastor's wife who was in the room. They, They all were saying... We're not surprised yes. by some of the things that we've seen. Yeah, you know, I hear the same thing from uh, from Black Christians, especially those yeah. who have been in evangelical yeah. spaces. You know, the response to this book among many white evangelicals is shock and recognition. Mm-hmm. Among Black Christians, it's it's recognition, absolutely recognition. zero shock. Like they say, yeah, thanks, Kristen, for writing this all down, but nothing new here, right? There's no shock there. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I kept you longer than I promised you I would because I've enjoyed the conversation. And so uh, the book is Jesus and John Wayne. Uh, can you tell us what you're working on now? Or are you one of those scholars who likes to keep that a secret? <laughs> no, it's, it's out there. It's public. My next book is called Live, Laugh, Love. And it is a cultural history of white Christian womanhood. So uh, kind of similar to Jesus and John Wayne, but uh, looking at how cultural products like Christian romance novels and uh, mm. mommy blogs and Hallmark movies and a whole host of other things uh, shape religious, cultural and political identities. Well, that will be fascinating. I can't wait to read that. Kristen Dumais, thanks so much for being on the program today. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us, written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. So, like I say, uh, this wasn't really a tell me where I'm wrong uh, episode. We didn't follow the, the format there. I just really wanted to have a conversation w- with her about this scholarship and um, about where she see thing, sees things going. Um, but I think that the book, Jesus and John Wayne, um, what she said about, what Kristen said about a sense of shock and recognition, I think that's right. And, and some, I don't agree with her on all of it. Um, I, I really do think that there is a, a um, there is such a thing as evangelicalism that can be defined theologically. I just think it's probably a different group than we thought it was or a smaller uh, subset uh, than we thought it was. And I think that sometimes people looked around and said, wait a minute, the things that we thought were the first order issues weren't the first order issues for all of us. And the things that we thought were minor notes were for some of us major notes. And uh, so I think that that's, that's a big place where I would differ 
Uh, but I think overall what the book is uh, demonstrating and showing is that uh, there is a uh, a kind of culturally defined masculinity wrapped up in the idea of uh, fighting. I mean, you can see that uh, not just in terms of the Driscoll and, and Trump uh, stuff and so forth, but, uh, but also uh, the, the fact that there are many uh, evangelical pastors I hear from all the time for whom the controversy is not just what they are saying. Uh, the controversy is that they're not angry uh, at the right people or they're not angry at the right volume. I think that really is identifying something dangerous and something that should be reformed. So, This is Russell Moore, and this is The Russell Moore Show. Thanks for listening. Be sure to uh, subscribe, send uh, this episode to a friend if you think that they would enjoy it, and leave a review. Uh, if you could, that really helps people to find the show. And be sure to check out Christianity Today, lifting up the sages and storytellers of the church. You can click on the cover art to find out how you can get a free trial membership to check it out. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to the Christianity Today Public Theology Project's Russell Moore Show. Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Eric Petrick is our chief creative officer. Russell Moore is the executive producer and host. Mike Cosper is our director of podcasts. Production assistance by Cormedia. Beth Gravencourt serves as coordinator. Kevin Duthu, producer. Audio mixing on today's episode by Kevin Duthu. Our theme song is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton. Administration for Christianity Today by Christine Kolb and Pam Vodanova. If you like what you heard on today's episode, make sure you subscribe to catch the upcoming episodes. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast. Two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman, discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.